0: Our passage this morning is John chapter 5, verses 31 to 47, and I thought I'd just begin by reading it. You might remember that this is following on from Jesus healing the invalid man at the pool of Bethesda. He'd told the man to pick up his mat and walk on a Sabbath day, which had upset the Jewish leaders. But what upset them more was his claim that he had the authority to decide What was appropriate to do or not do on the Sabbath because of his relationship with God. He called God his own Father and thereby made himself equal with God and claimed also in verses 19 to 30 to have been given responsibility by the Father to give eternal life to those who believe in him and at the final judgment to judge justly between those who are living to please God and those who are not So that's where we got to last Sunday morning, and so now this morning, as the discussion continues, the question is, are these just the words of a madman, or does Jesus have any confirmation that what he is saying is true? Is there any testimony to the truth of his words, the truth of his claims to be equal with God and to have the authority of God? John five thirty one Testimonies about Jesus. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favour, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, How are you going to believe what I say? I don't know if you noticed or not, but there's actually five confirmations or five different testimonies in these verses to the truth of Jesus' claims. Let me point them out as we work our way through the passage. To begin with, though, some comments from Jesus about self-testifying. Verses 31 and 32, Jesus says... If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. I know there's been quite a lot of discussion at times in the media about the Facebook and Instagram culture that we're part of, where people promote themselves and their own achievements. Uh, The photoshopped images of the celebrities looking beautiful, or the amazing stories. From uh, your friends about their perfect night out? Can you really trust the content? Or what about all the fake news stories that are so common online? How do you know that something hasn't just been made up? Well, Jesus is addressing that question of fake information when he says in these verses that he has other people or other things that testify to the truth of what he's just been saying. Jesus is not telling the Jewish leaders, verse 31, that he can't be trusted uh, to speak what is true, but rather he's, he's saying that if the claims he is making are true, then there has to be at least one other person who testifies in his favor. Because Jesus, for the last 10 verses or so, has been saying that he and the Father are in the closest possible relationship. He only does what he sees his Father doing, verse 19. He's been entrusted by God the Father with the authority to bring life and to judge justly. So at the very least, the truth of his words must be attested to by the Father himself. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. The Father loves the Son and has appointed him to do what Jesus is now doing. We'll come back to that idea in just a moment, but here's the first of the five testimonies in my list. Number one, the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of John, verses 33 to 35. John says to the Jewish leaders, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth, not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it, that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. Back at the start of this series in John chapter 1, we, we read of how the Jewish leaders sent a delegation to John the Baptist to ask who he was. And John testified that he was not the Messiah. But he, he pointed them to Jesus, claiming that Jesus is the chosen one of God, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus himself is not interested in human testimony, he's not dependent on what fellow human beings say about him. He has weightier testimony than that, but he mentions John the Baptist for the benefit of the Jewish leaders. He hopes that John's testimony might be of benefit to them, might assist them in understanding who he is. This time of the year, many of the young people are beginning to get geared up for studying for their prelim exams, and a number of them will make use of study guides that they can buy to help them you know, the Nat 5 English Success Guide or uh, How to Pass National 5 English. If you can't understand what your teacher in school is saying, then go looking for a simpler explanation or a clearer explanation, one that works for you. In a similar way, Jesus is saying, if it works for you, look to John the Baptist. If his testimony helps you, then make use of it. John was someone that the Jewish leaders had been interested in. They had a certain amount of respect for him because he was clearly a prophet. For a while, his light had burned, verse 35, and, and for a while, the Jewish leaders had chosen to enjoy his eccentric presence, at least until he was thrown into prison and then beheaded by Herod. John says that, Jesus says that John's testi- John testified to him. And if you Jewish leaders... If it helps you to be saved, then listen to his testimony and believe that I am who I claim to be. Number two, and here's the second source of testimony, number two, the testimony of Jesus' works. The works of Jesus testify to who he is. Verse 36, Jesus says, I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish The very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. What's Jesus referring to? Well, he's he's talking about the miracles that he's been doing and the teaching that he's been giving and the rescue mission that he's on. If I said to you that someone was a world-famous golfer, you would expect them to be able to play around a golf. Or if they claim to be a world-famous singer, that they would have a nice voice or if they were a world-famous chef that they would be able to cook. Jesus is saying, verse 36, that the things that he is doing, the quality of his actions, show the truth of what he is claiming. He's, he's changed water into wine, chapter 2. He's healed an official son, chapter 4. He's enabled an invalid to walk after 38 years, chapter 5. These are the signs that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. He's doing things that only God can do. And his teaching, his teaching is incredible. People are, are coming to him to believe, as we've seen over these last few weeks, they just believe because of what he says. The woman at the well, Nicodemus, the respected teacher, the disciples themselves. And although the Jewish leaders don't know it, the very presence of Jesus in the world and his eventual death on the cross, and his resurrection on the third day, these are the works that testify most to his relationship with the Father. God so loved the world that he sent his Son. And as the Son completes the works that the Father gives him, he finishes the work of salvation, and he makes it possible for us to have eternal life. His incredible work of salvation is the ultimate proof of his claims. Number three, the testimony of the Father, and we've touched on this already. The testimony of the Father, verses 37 and 38. Jesus adds, The Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one He sent, the religious leaders certainly wouldn 't have liked to have he- to hear that uh, Jesus telling them that they do not really know God nor His word because they do not believe that Jesus has been sent from God. The religious leaders they probably prided themselves on their religious knowledge and their theological understanding, a bit like an expert that I heard on the radio recently talking about their what they thought was their particular field of expertise, and they weren't very happy with anyone dismissing or challenging their expert knowledge. Similarly, the Jewish leaders thought they were the experts on the things of God. They would presumably have admitted that they hadn't heard God's voice or seen his form in the way that some of the people of Israel did at Mount Sinai, but they would have thought of themselves as being so closely in the same tradition that they fully knew God's words and his laws. And therefore, they had the right to define what was and was not true. But Jesus says, no, you don't know God because you clearly don't know or accept me. I and the Father are one, he'll say in John chapter 9, 10, or, or anyone who has seen me has seen the Father in John 14. I do and say what the Father doesn't says. He just told them in the verses immediately before this. I wonder in what sense Jesus means that the Father who sent him has himself testified concerning him. He, he might mean through the Scriptures, as we're about to go on and consider, or maybe the voice at his baptism that gets repeated at his transfiguration. This is my Son whom I love, I'm well pleased with, listen to him. Or perhaps just a general reference to the way the Father reveals the Son to the world Number four, the testimony of the Scriptures. The testimony of Scripture, verses 39 and 40. You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The religious leaders, they were diligent in their study of Scripture. They devoted significant time to to memorizing and studying and commenting on the law and the prophets and the history books and the, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. They believed that the better your knowledge of the law, that granted you better life in the world to come. Those who held fast to the law of Moses would gain eternal life. But Jesus says, no, that's not the source of eternal life. The Scriptures themselves don't grant eternal life. Rather, they point to Him. They point to Jesus. And it's in Jesus that we find life. Verse 39, these are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I'm planning to finish this morning by talking about how the Scriptures testify about Jesus and how they point to the coming of Jesus. But just note for now, verse 40, that it is possible to study the scriptures and yet not have life in Jesus. The religious leaders did it. They poured hours into examining the scriptures, but then rejected Jesus. If I put this picture up on the screen, some of you will see one thing and others will see another. You'll either see a young woman looking away or an old woman looking down. Both images are there, but you probably only see one. It was similar with the Jewish leaders as they looked at the Scriptures. They came up with the image of the Messiah as a conquering king, one who would come with power and authority and overthrow the dreadful Roman Empire. Uh, The occupation of Israel would be ended and God's kingdom would, would arrive and, and that idea of a conquering king Messiah is found in the pages of the Old Testament, but there's also the image of an obedient son and a suffering servant, an unassuming man, and, and a sin-bearing savior. The Jewish leaders looked, but they failed to get the whole picture, and they didn't see Jesus, and they didn't see in Jesus the fulfillment of of all that they were reading. Similarly today, there are unfortunately many people who study the Scriptures in school or university or even in church who fail to see that they are fulfilled in Christ. They don't come to know Christ through their studying. And therefore, they do not come to him to be given life. Verse forty. There's a little interlude next, verses 41 to 44. Jesus continues to comment on the religious leaders unbelief, Verses 41 to 44, comments about the Jewish leaders. Verse 41, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you, I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I've come in my Father's name and you do not accept me, but if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus certainly says some pretty hard-hitting things. He doesn't pull his punctures, does he? He makes it, it clear throughout this section that he is the one who gives eternal life and he is the one who will exercise judgment on the last day. He doesn't shy away from telling people as it is now here in verse 42, he tells these upright and respected Jewish leaders that they do not have the love of God in their hearts. They do not love God. They do not have his love flowing out of their hearts to others. Despite what they might think, they are not, in fact, listening to God and God's testimony. You know how it is? Sometimes people can be so caught up in their own circle of friends or their own way of doing things that they are isolated from the real world. They're not open to new ideas or different ways of doing things. I think the word glory here in these verses is just another way of talking about testimony or or praise or or esteem or acknowledgement from other people. The Jewish leaders are, it seems, willing to accept various teachers and leaders who fit with them, even though they come in their own name, testifying to their own authority on the basis of self-praise or glory, verse 43, But they do not accept Jesus because they're not interested in who God glorifies. And then verse 45, Jesus goes even further in his challenge and talks fifthly about the testimony of Moses. Number five, the testimony of Moses, verse 45. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father, Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? The Jewish leaders, they prided themselves on their knowledge of Scripture. But more than anything else, they prided themselves on knowing the law and the writings of Moses. Moses was their great hero, came across a website the other day advertising the Elvis Presley Appreciation Society. You've uh, probably never heard of them, but you could imagine that the club are pretty fanatical about Elvis and his music, his lyrics, and the things that he did and said. Well, the Jewish leaders were a bit like that with their hero Moses. But Jesus Jesus says, verse 45, that Moses will actually accuse them before the Father because of their unbelief. (laughs) Jesus won't have to tell the Father about their hard-heartedness. Moses will point out their foolishness. Or or perhaps not Moses in person, but certainly all that Moses wrote about, Moses' testimony was that Jesus the Messiah was coming and all the laws and rules and regulations and the sacrificial system that was communicated from God via Moses to the people of Israel, that, that whole first covenant way of relating to God pointed forward to the need of a new covenant. As we were thinking about Uh, last Sunday evening when we looked at Hebrews chapter 8. If these Jewish leaders don't believe their great hero Moses when he points to the nature of the coming Messiah, then there's no way that they're going to believe Jesus himself. Five testimonies, therefore, that Jesus points to to back up the truth of his claims. The testimony of John, the testimony of Jesus' works, the testimony of the Father, the testimony of Scripture, and the testimony of Moses. These things, or people, testify that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and that it's by believing in Him that we have eternal life. For the remainder of our time now this morning, I want to come back to this idea that the Scriptures testify about Jesus and ask, how do they do that? And I just want to give a very brief Bible overview and suggest a few ways in which I think they do, because I think this is going to be helpful for you as you're interacting with others, and even just thinking yourself about how Jesus fulfills the Scriptures. For instance, there are specific Bible verses like Genesis one twenty-six that hint at the complexity of God and the plurality of his nature. Let us make mankind in our image. Genesis 1 verse 26. God speaking of himself in the plural, suggesting that God is more complex than just a single person. Also throughout the pages of the Old Testament, there are various theophanies or appearances of God that might suggest three persons or the pre-incarnate presence of Christ, For instance, some people wonder if uh, the three visitors who appeared to Abraham in Genesis 18, whether that represents the triune nature of God. Or in Genesis 32, when Jacob wrestles with God, it's maybe God the Son who is present. And certainly in Daniel 3, when the three friends are in the fiery furnace and a fourth figure appears with them who looks like a son of the gods, most Christian commentators would think that was God the Son in the furnace with them. Or Daniel's vision of heaven in chapter 7 when he sees one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, approaching the ancient of days and being given authority over all people so that his kingdom will never pass away. Surely that's a vision that is speaking about Jesus. And so the list goes on. There are also the specific prophetic promises of the coming of Jesus. Genesis 3, immediately after the fall, we read of God saying, to Satan, that a descendant of the woman will crush him. Or in Isaiah 9 verse 6, a passage that we'll hear multiple times this Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And there are many other promises like that, and I could direct you to some books on that if you'd be interested in finding more. Then there are the types and the foreshadowings in the Old Testament, the stories and events that are ultimately given their full meaning and significance in Jesus. So, stories like Abraham being tested in Genesis 22 to see see if he's willing to offer his son as a sacrifice. That is fulfilled ultimately in God giving his son Jesus on the cross. Or Old Testament characters like Melchizedek in Genesis 14 that the writer of Hebrews refers to as a prototype of Christ, a priest without beginning or end, one outside of the line of Aaron. Even the great salvation stories for God's people point to God's grand plan of salvation, Noah being saved in the ark, uh, Joseph providing for the people during the famine Moses delivering the people out of of Egypt, leading them through the sea and dry ground. Such events culminate, they climax in the greatest rescue mission of Jesus Christ. And then there's the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. God says to Abraham in Genesis 12 that he'll make him into a great nation and that eventually all peoples on earth will be blessed through him. The writer of, of Hebrews Uh, tells us that Abraham died without receiving that promise. Despite already being in uh, the physical land and having some descendants, he was still waiting for a better fulfillment, a better land. He was waiting for what only Jesus Christ could bring about. And if you were to read a book like God's Big Picture, uh, you would learn that how that promise can be traced right throughout the whole Bible, the theme of God's people in God's place, living under God's rule, experiencing God's blessing, fulfilled ultimately through Christ and his coming and the new creation. I think that for me, that's one of the strongest evidences for the truthfulness of the Bible, the consistent way that that big overarching story goes throughout the different books, uh, despite the 40 or so different authors, and and the roughly 1,500-year time span, it all hangs together and is internally consistent despite the different styles and types of literature. We see that even in terms of fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. The books of Moses with their descriptions of how God should be worshipped and sin dealt with, they point forward to something better. The blood of bulls and goats, it didn't really work. You know, the animal sacrifices, they just point forward to the need of a a better sacrifice. And Isaiah the prophet, speaking around 700 years before the coming of Christ, foretold of a coming Savior who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, on whom God would lay the sin and iniquity of us all. As the writer of Hebrews again says, Jesus finally comes as the greatest high priest, offering himself as the perfect atoning sacrifice and dealing with sin once and for all. He himself becomes the perfect temple, the perfect way of of relating with God. He fulfills all that the Old Testament priesthood and sacrificial system was pointing forward to. And then there is the fulfillment of the kingship theme after Moses and the giving of the law and the people coming into the land of Israel under Joshua. Then the history books take up that description of what it looks like for Israel to live under a human kingship. But those human kings were flawed and and often they didn't serve God's people very well. But there were promises of a coming king who would do so. In 2 Samuel 16, for instance, God promises King David a successor whose throne will endure forever. And in various Psalms and prophetic books, they speak of a messianic king, a chosen one, who will rule with godliness and power. You see, the Jewish leaders were partly right. The Messiah is a king, a a powerful, conquering king who who will defeat all his enemies and one day will bring God's people into their perfect rest. (laughs) Jesus is such a king, and one day we will see him come in glory. The Jews, at the time of Jesus, only had as their scriptures what we now call the Old Testament. But these Old Testament books, time and again, and in various ways, testify to the truth of Jesus' claim. He is who he claims to be. And if you look into it, it's clear that he fulfills all that was written about him in advance. Some people have counted the number of Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled during his lifetime and have suggested that there were over 300 prophecies written more than 500 years before his coming that he fulfilled. Many of which were he had no control over, place of his birth, his human lineage, the location of the first few years of his life, the manner of his death, but also just stuff that talks about his ministry and the nature of what he will come to do. As Jesus claimed in front of the religious leaders, the scriptures do indeed testify about him let's pray oh God we thank you for your word for the Bible for the Old and New Testament and uh, most especially we thank you for Jesus for who he is and all that he has achieved for us because of his coming. In this Advent season, may we learn to appreciate that even more. Amen.